Hello and welcome to another episode of the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Mike Varley. I'm Jesse Hyatt. And if you are watching this on YouTube, do not adjust your monitors. You are seeing our logo rotating again and again, and that's because we have no video this week. So for all you that are devoted Spotify and otherwise listeners, you are not actually missing anything this week. All you're missing is our rotating logo, which I don't know, maybe that's nice to look at. Yeah. But you really, you're not missing anything. You're fine. You're good. That's, that's right. <laughs> and that is because, uh, as usual, we're doing something a little bit different than any other week that came before it. This week, instead of talking about our walk, which covered the North Shore slash Central Staten Island, we are going to be talking a little bit about the place we're staying. Yeah, that's right. So this month of September, Instead of commuting to Staten Island every day from our Brooklyn apartment, we decided to find a place to stay on Staten Island itself. And we were able to find a lovely intentional community called Ghanas. And we have been staying here for the month. And we were able to speak with one of the founding members of this community and hear a bit about how it got started and what it's been like over the last 50 years or so since it's been around 40 years since july 1st 1980 as we'll find out okay well maybe i'll have to re-listen to this and get my facts straight but y'all you all are gonna hear the truth that's right so you're about to hear a conversation we had with michael johnson one of the co-founding members of ganas and we recorded this after one of our walks on the first week and we did it in an informal manner where Michael meets with people that typically come and visit and want to know a little bit more about the community. And so we just strapped the mics on but didn't do the video. So right. that's why it's an audio exclusive. That's right. And as befits the informal nature of the conversation, the you'll be hearing a lot of uh, ice cream trucks and car noises throughout the whole thing sets the scene we're still in the city even though it feels like we're somehow removed because it's beautiful here and right now you might even hear birds chirping and the more bucolic version of staten island but we're still in new york city there's still cars going by there's still street noise and that's what that is that's right so without further ado let us begin our conversation with michael johnson You want to start with questions? That's a much, a much better way to. Uh, I much prefer doing, doing it conversationally rather than okay. Here's the story of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. Well, since we since we watched the interview this morning, I had one question in particular that I think is kind of a sure. good one because it's about the very beginning i'm curious about the about the very very beginning of ganas okay i'm curious um how did you know each other and also how long did you talk about doing something like this before you took the plunge okay so um the the key person uh 
uh, was a woman named Mildred Gordon. I met Mildred Gordon in 1968 in New York City, and there's a whole story behind behind that. But she and her uh, husband at the time had started a very unusual school, it's a human relations training institute, and it was called GROW, G-R-O-W, Group Relations Ongoing Workshops. And uh, it was a, it was a, a, a training school that no lectures, it was all experiential. So you want to come in and learn different ways of working with groups, you use the modality that you're uh, uh, studying. And if you want to explore a certain area of human uh, behavior, experience, you would use a group dynamic for it. So it was constantly, it was experiential from the bay from the very beginning. And it was, you know, it was very radically organized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is exactly what I was looking for at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. And to make the, the long story short so we get to the actual answer to your question, the school ran for about five years and got into a political fight while well, we're politically attacked by the New York State Psychological Association. And one thing led to another thing and uh, Ed and Mildred, Ed was her husband, decided they would let go of the program and they had a daughter who was 13 and things were not going really great for her, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And they decided to move to Arizona and I decided to go with them. And in Arizona, uh, we had a falling out, mm -hmm. uh, basically around a woman I fell in love with who, you know, so it was either you're, you're either for me or you're for them kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I made a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then she and her husband divorced, and then she ended up with uh, uh, a young uh, a young man who uh, 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 Jeff, who was who was uh, uh, attracted to her for her teachings and stuff like that, her her thinking, and they ended up in San Francisco. Then in San Francisco, they hooked up with uh, Susan who came out on a, a part of her medical school training and, and they met several other people. And so they were in the Bay Area in, um, so the school was 68 to like 72. We were in Arizona up to about 75. So, and they were in San Francisco like 76 to 79. And I ended up in Austin, Texas okay. at that time. So they, they ended up uh, about five or six people ended up living together in a loft, or well, I guess in New York City you call it a loft, but I'm not, you know. What, but anyway, they were sharing a whole apartment. Yeah. And uh, the basic ideas that Mildred had that started the training school, they got into talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and you know, et cetera, et cetera, and. Finally, at one point, someone brought up the idea. It says, "Well, why don't we just do it?" And and uh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then I think someone said something like, "Well, if we're going to do something that crazy, and uh, 
San Francisco's not the place to do it. New York City's the place to do it. And several people already, uh, uh, George Canada, who was from Spain, and she, he is Julie's husband. Mm. But he's now in Spain because he's, uh, he, he, he's a, uh, a, a very unusual type of dwarf. And he has a lot of medical, medical issues. Oh, wow. So he went back to Spain because, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier to get the help that he needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now COVID. Yeah. And they're really separated. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, he and, and, and uh, uh, Bruno, who became Mildred's partner at the time, both were really fascinated at the idea of New York City. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody converged on New York City, and they t took an, uh, an apartment on the Lower East Side. And then George went back to Spain, and Bruno went back to Germany, and Jeff, who was the one who had gone out to San Francisco with um, with Mildred, uh, he was in Denver with George's uh, sister, and so they everything spread. Everybody got there and then broke up. Yeah. And so Mildred went on this whole travel trip talking to people about this crazy thing that she was thinking about doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and in the process, uh, I had separated from uh, my wife and she had heard about it. So she came through Austin and we reconnected. Mm -hmm. So. Eventually, what happened was everybody did converge back, and they went looking for uh, a place to start this project. And uh, the only place in which the real estate was within means was Staten Island. Mm -hmm. but one of the criteria was it had to be near the water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this was the first house that we bought. This yeah. one? Wow. And it was... Uh, was it six of you at the start? How many was actually in the first house? How many people then? Because there's a lot of different names flying in and out. <laughs> okay. Well, you say one of the things uh, uh, is that as soon as we got here and set up shop, there's so many things to bring in here. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it's, I'll just start with your, for your, uh, your question. Yeah. Uh, so it was July 1st, 1980, is when we moved in to this building. Yeah. We had only the top two floors. Mm. Okay. The owner was still had 90 days on the on the on the bottom two floors. Oh wow. Yeah. That extended out into nine months. Ah. <laughs> so there was there was Mildred and Bruno. Uh, George, uh, me, uh, Anna, who is uh, uh, George's uh, sister, and then another guy who never actually became a part of the group, but he he he, he knew everybody. Uh, his name was Kapol. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was Julie, lived in Manhattan, and she was Kapol's boy uh, girlfriend at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So that was like the starting thing. And right. then a guy named Alfonso came from Spain who was a friend of George's. 
and then this person came, and then that person mm. came. And within, let's say, this, uh, 81, I would say that within a year and a half, we had 16 people living in this house. Wow. Wow. Okay, like where you're right now, there were about three yeah. people. Okay. okay. And this is a three-story house, or two? Well, it's ground floor actually, and then it's two. A, it's a multi-family dwelling. Yeah. You know, so there's this floor and then there's this floor and then there's two more floors. Okay. Oh, two more. Okay. okay. Yeah. And uh, the upper two floors, uh, one floor was a, a one unit and the one above it was, was a third unit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was a unit downstairs. Yeah. But we kept, you know, adjusting things, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I, you haven't been able to go inside the house. No, yeah, we're Not still yet. in quarantine. Yeah, next we have a Friday. couple more days. <laughs> so after two weeks, I can, uh, yeah. someone can give you uh, a tour. Yeah, we'd love a tour. But um, so at that same time, the um, this house next door was occupied by a squatter. Mm. And... Uh, there was a lean on the house, and the water pipe uh, it busted, and and so, you know, it was such a difficult situation for the owner that he wanted to get rid of it, and so we got it very inexpensively, mm -hmm. and then that became the workshop for learning how to build and fix and carpent and paint and sheetrock and, and uh, deal with electricity and deal with plumbing. That, that became our workshop. Right. Cool. So did, did anybody have a leg up on anyone else as far as those skills or was it all just kind of everybody at the ground floor? It was, uh, it was uh, Bruno was, uh, had a real disposition for it. Mm -hmm. and, and so he became kind of the lead person on that and, and was the, the primary maintenance person for for, uh, I don't want to say the, f the first 20 years. Wow. And then Wittry came along in the mm -hmm. late 80s. Uh, and uh, and then he, he got involved, so, you know, and then, but at one point, uh, we had like, uh, we, we had uh, seven houses, eight houses, eight houses actually, uh, and 100 people. Yeah. Wow. Okay, and and that was kind of like you know, and we kept arguing. We, it, one of the principles that we used in this whole thing, because because people kept coming. I mean, we we had gotten into doing the project, and that was uh, it was a fascinating project, and was uh, I, I talked about that a lot in the in the in, in the uh, interview, um, and that attracted a lot of people. <clears throat> and uh, so it was a very, very dynamic energy you know, that, that, that was going on and people were sharing all kinds of stories about themselves and looking at themselves and looking at each other and, and, uh, and then at the same time we got this house and then we got that house and then the house back there, we bought that house. And, and we got the store down at uh, on, on mm -hmm. 208. Right. And and that the store there took off in the mm -hmm. ways that we were really kind of you know wow 
because no one had done anything in business. Not one of us, except wow. Mildred had. <laughs> yeah. Her father was a, had stores and stuff like that. Uh -huh. so yeah. She learned a lot about that. And uh, and then one of the things was 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 that all you know that we were selling used stuff. Mm -hmm. You know that was we we had a whole bunch of used stuff somehow. So we decided let's open a store and put it in there and sell it. And then uh, people started coming, saying, "We've got stuff, you know." And they said, "Said that we go get it." Said, and then pretty soon, the main the main feature of the business was furniture. Mm. Right. And then the furniture store, which is uh, if you've been We've by, walked by yes, it, yes. Right. So that building was a wreck. Uh huh. Uh, it had. It used to be a carriage, a, a firehouse, oh. with oh. the horse-driven carriage. Oh wow! You know, wagon. Yeah. Uh, not carriage, but wagon. Cool. And <gasps> it was built in such a way that the main structural support was an arch. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! Huh. And then, you know, it went from this stage to that stage, different uses. And then someone decided, hey, let's do a little renovation, and they cut the arch, oh. which meant that they cut. The main foundation. Yeah. The main support structure oh, gosh. for it. And so, uh, and then it was five or six squatters were living in it. And so, and then we found, you know, someone had it. They didn't want to deal with it. They had the, as a, it was an attachment that got attached that was uh, collapsed and it was condemned and it had all these squatters and someone just wanted to get rid of the whole thing. So we got that building and the lot next to it mm. for $33,000. Wow. wow. And so, anyway. Was it so Amazing. Was pretty much every acquisition, or were most of the acquisitions that type of opportunism? Or did you reach a point where it was like, we were growing to our means, we needed a property? Or what, did you always kind of just wait until the opportunity was right to do expansion? Good question. Uh, we got this house because we had 16 people and we didn't have enough room for 16 people. <laughs> right. Okay. And then it took a long time to get it fixed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the time we got it fixed up and people started moving into it, we still didn't have enough. And more people were coming. Wow. So we came to a policy decision, which was, we don't want to say no to anyone who wants to come. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to have to have to buy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, at that time, uh, George was working on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so so we had and Susan was a doctor, so we we had substantial income coming. Mm. So we bought this house with a mortgage. We bought this one with with cash. Mm. I mean, it was it was wasn't that much, you know, that we needed. The third house, which is the the big one back there, uh, that was a. We didn't have the money for to, to buy that one outright. Uh, but uh, we we found out what the what the owner wanted, and we worked out a deal to where he could get the price he wanted, but on the time period we wanted. Oh, smart. Okay, and th that. The time period he would be getting monthly exactly what he wanted to be getting, yeah, you know, et cetera. 
and so, but every other house that we bought, we paid cash for it because mm. wow. we had the capital mm -hmm. to do yeah. that. And every building that we bought, we we bought with cash. Yeah. Wow! So we only had two mortgages in the in in in, in the whole history of uh, of, wow. of our purchasing. That's uh, great. We had a lot yeah. of uh, discussion while we were listening to the interview uh, about. George and Susan's contributions with respect to finances and we were going back and forth about the idea of like having an equitable solution to these things and if there would be any angst as uh, a consequence of one person contributing more than another. Now of course Jesse was able to talk about the idea is once you get to that place where everybody values each other's labor equally and you know somebody that's doing the gardening and somebody that's bringing in the finances are of the same plane you know it becomes actually a very logical choice you know it doesn't it, it doesn't have to be a thing of uh, angst or animosity yeah. um, still I, I feel the anxiety about you know <laughs> knowing that somebody would bring in more than me and then maybe feeling like there's an, a, a mismatch I can imagine hearing how you're talking about it currently that there was so much enthusiasm, that there were people that were coming for externally, that that would, you know, from my mind, if I were the, the financier, so to speak, you know, that I would be excited to just contribute money because I want to see how big this thing grows. But I, was there, I mean, how rocky, if at all, was that, that stage of, of uh, navigating the idea of unequal financing? Love your questions, they're just great questions. <laughs> Just before you asked the question, I realized I was using the word we. Okay. Mm. And uh, there's kind of a multiple we. And, and, and that's been the case from the very beginning. Uh, the large we is the people who are, who are living here at a given time. Mm. But uh, the people in San Francisco, one of the things that they started really looking at and thinking about and arguing about and debating and exploring was the idea that, uh, and, and, and this was an idea that, uh, that, that Susan brought in, she said, we should all be available to everybody with regards to everything, sexually, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so all the discussions started coming up. So there was this long line of thinking and, and arguing and, and debating, you know, the pros and cons of all of this. And uh, the basic thinking that Mildred was bringing into, uh, into the, uh, uh, to, to the game, okay, uh, had to do with connection, relationship, thinking of yourself as you're not just who, you're not just what's inside your skin, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, uh, and that the project had a hugely, a very deep political objective, which was how do people live together mm. and work out problems. And uh, that's really what people were becoming really drawn to. With how can we live together and work out problems? And it's a research project. 
So from the very beginning, we were thinking of ourselves as a research project. Now the we I'm talking about now is a small number of people who are the actual founders and people who came and joined into that project as, as, as we went. So very early on, we had formed, it, it kind of emerged, but it was always, it was always there and it gets got a little bit more formal and, and we're even still formalizing it to this day because uh, uh, we, we just invent, uh, invented ourselves into a, uh, an LLC. Mm. Mm. So we called it, uh, the name that came up was We're the Core Group. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now you used the word equity and equal. Mm -hmm. And one of the very radical aspects of this, the core group thinking and, and the, uh, the intentionality behind, behind the, um, the whole project, the concept of equal is distorted. Mm -hmm. or it distorts it. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to do. This is what I have to give, and I'm willing to give everything. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know how much you guys uh, are. Are you all married or no? no? We're not. No, we've been around a while though, about okay, six years but, together. Okay. So, do you think in terms of you're equal and what she's doing is equal, and blah, 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 or is it much more in terms of? Look, I want this, and you're getting in the fucking way. You know. I think it's a little both. I think it's both. Yes. I think we try to be equal, but there's a there's an right. element of both. Depends measuring. on the situation. Once yeah. you start talking equality, you're talking measuring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to get away from measuring. Mm -hmm. And the rule of thumb that we uh, uh, developed. That, that we wanted to try to live by. If somebody wants something from you, they ask you for something, you say yes, unless there's a good reason to say no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you're not measuring anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the measuring. So there was another community that had been around for about 20 years and one of the key persons died and, and it was breaking up and they had a lot of different kinds of property and stuff and they were going to have to go into how to negotiate this and of course by the time they got to the point to where they were breaking up and there was the property etc etc there was lots of tensions and things that hadn't gotten resolved you know over the last mm -hmm. three or four years blah 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 and the advice that uh, George was, t was t uh, helping them the advice that George said in your first conversation, you want to start talking about what do each of you want. Mm. Do not get any conversation going in terms of what someone has a right to. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they settled the whole thing in one conversation. Wow. Mm. And they were all just, you know, the whole right business yeah. was all right there on the edge, and that just opened up another door, and everybody went through it. That's mm -hmm. interesting. That is a very big difference, huh? A huge difference. Yeah. And it profound, politically profound difference. Yeah. I wonder, 
and this, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you talk about... Let, let me just, just, just put one piece of Oh, yes, please, finish. yeah. And at the, uh, from the very beginning, we could, it wasn't a question of uh, uh, everybody's equal in terms of their work. It was a question of every job is essential. Mm. So no job should be compensated more, deserves more, et cetera, et cetera, because every job is essential. And that was, that was the, that the idea behind that, not, not equality. No. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I wonder if in getting into that mindset, is there sort of like a, any sort of like spiritual practice of like letting go of your possessions and sh or like uh, in service to each other? Or is it no. purely just like a sharing economy or like, no, I'm does any of that relate? Or <laughs> I'm in this because this is the way I want to live my life. Okay. And I have these relationships. Yeah. And I built up, you know, I mean, it's an impression. In the uh, early part of the, the 2000, 2003 or 4, something like that, I, you know, I turned uh, up to about 63 or 4 and I said, look, you know, I want to, I really, I don't want to retire, you know, but I want to step back and I want to start doing things that I want outside. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that I want to explore, mm -hmm. and uh, and I started doing that. And I, as I was doing that, I realized at one point I just had a whole thing walking down the street in in uh, on the uh, in New York in Manhattan. My God, this platform that I have is just so fucking incredible. You know. I can do this because mm. there is this platform, mm. and I help to build it, and I'm committed to it, and I'm committed to maintaining it. Mm. You know, and and uh, it just was, you know, wow. Yeah. Circling. Okay, we're talking yeah. the core group right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 The real distinction. Right. Yeah. C circling back to the kind of the the tenant that you describe, you know, uh, say yes unless you have a reason not to. Uh, a, good I, reason. a good reason. A not good reason. Not to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. So, I, one reason that I could imagine is debatable is the idea of having one's own personal space slash personal ambition. Did that ever come up mm. as a, a reason to or not to, you know? Like, was, was it clear from everybody of the core group from the beginning that uh, that personal identity ambition track was not a compelling reason to not do something? Does that make sense? You know? Hmm. It was a major problem we worked in on day in and day out. <laughs> I mean, that this, uh, the whole business of rivalry and status, etc. We made a distinction between competition and rivalry. Okay. Competition is for limited resources, and that's mm. that's a given. I mean, you, you, people have interests as limited resource. There'll be conflict, and people will you know, will compete. compete. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't turn into uh, the winner take all, but it, but anyway, rivalry, status, all of that stuff. 
that was what we worked on. Mm -hmm. We came together to live together, to deal with whatever comes up, and all of us have embodied what everybody else has embodied through uh, in our culture and in, in their unique and various forms. And it was there. It was. It was all there, and we were trying to deal with it as best as we could. And that was that was the research work. Yeah. How can people talk about the problems? Because they don't talk about the problems, you're going to have hierarchy. I mean, not hierarchy. You're going to have domination. Yeah. Right. Hierarchy is, is something we built into the mm -hmm. uh, project from the very beginning, in the sense of what we call the participatory management system. Mm -hmm. So all the work is broken up into specific areas. Julie is in charge of uh, the, uh, the housing and things. Uh, Richard is, uh, is maintenance. And the person in, in uh, the manager in the area makes the final decision. Mm. But anything that's important that has to be done with consultation. Mm -hmm. So we meet five days a week for an hour or so to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. So there is completely ample ample time for people to bring up the issues that uh, are going to really have large impact. And, and uh, so, but the discussion, the debates, et cetera, et cetera, that ever happen, the manager makes the decision, mm -hmm. not the group. Oh, wow. We, uh, when, when the hurricane came, Sandy, mm -hmm. this, the roof of that house got met, uh, was, was damaged, so it had to be replaced. And so there's a bunch of people went in and started doing the research. They got this and that, and we're discussing these pros and cons, and it got down to two choices. And there were very strong advocates for both choices, and we were in the middle of this long, uh, this is like the eighth or ninth, intense discussion that we had mm -hmm. and it was going on and it was still back and forth and finally Richard said okay that's it I've made my decision <laughs> we're going with this one wow oh okay and we moved on mm. how how many years in did it take you to implement that managerial top-down or was it was that from jump street top-down or well, I'm sorry the, no 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 it, yeah. it, it's very it's it's Really, really important. Yeah, because everybody thinks hierarchy means top down. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, the the manager is appointed by the group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The manager makes the 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 decision in the area of work, yeah. not everywhere. Okay. Uh huh. But they have to consult. Mm. And they, ha and they have to hear and listen. It's not just, okay, I'm consulting, go ahead. Right. right. You know, then they're, they get fired. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, the consult is consult. Right. You're really looking to get new information yeah. that you don't have. Yeah. Okay? And then the other thing is, is that most of the decisions, like most of the decisions that uh, Richard has to make, affects Julie. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So there's there's a... There's a balancing factor that yeah. goes on. So you did use a phrase so at the beginning. Yeah, what was the phrase that you had referred to it as? It was participatory management. Participatory, participatory management. management. Okay, cool. And how how far into from July first, nineteen eighty, 
did that uh, system get established? In a way, you can say it's still getting established. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, all of this stuff that really generates the problems that we really can't solve, you know, it's all been very deeply embedded. Yeah. And so this is, it's, it's been a whole, the project is, is, is what I call transformative learning. Mm -hmm. You are able to actually identify what you've embodied and what it means and what the implications are. You, you, you don't get it here, you get, you, oh my God. Mm -hmm. One of the most powerful experiences I had was because I, I, I was, I was born and raised in Texas, mm -hmm. so I came with a lot of rivalries, mm. and this was some 15 years down the road, you know, and I'm walking down the street, walking home from the ferry, and this had been really preoccupied with this for, you know, a particular aspect of it for you know, several weeks or something like that, and then I just fucking got it. <laughs> <laughs> My drive to be superior means I am disvaluing the other person. Mm. Mm. That's what this is about. Mm -hmm. mm. It's downright nasty and mean and destructive and that was, I mean it took 15 years of work right. to really really get it yeah. wow. because it's it's I'm I have it embodied and I bought into it and it's because it serves me yeah or I'm mm -hmm. convinced it serves me yeah and there is an enormous amount of stuff that's got to go on within us in order to get to the point to where you can really say, no, I'm not going to, that's not, that's not going to be one of my values anymore. Mm. Yeah. But it doesn't go away. Right. You've just changed your relationship to it. Right. And you've got something else. And slowly that becomes weaker and this becomes stronger. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And particularly at pursuing the life path that you have, the rivalry system is just a further and further disservice, you know, that it's mm -hmm. truly but impeding it's, your ability I mean, it's, to, it's, to yeah, value this system. Right. Yeah. And we've, we've had just major, major, uh, at this point, the, the uh, change the world energy has calmed down quite a bit. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, around 2000, it was, there was a real shift and people said, look, you know, this has been phenomenal. I want to keep it, but also want this, this because pe people were, most of the people were in their 20s when, when, when we started mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, the core group. Mildred was in her 50s and I was 40, so, so you know. But it was like, there's other stuff out there I want to get into. You know, I want to have a baby, you know, or what have you. And all of that stuff was stuff that we had been putting off. Yeah. And mm. then, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's just been a lot of settling, getting older, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, what we've, uh, what we in developed and embodied in that first 20 years has, has uh, it, it's substantial. It's, yeah. It yeah. doesn't 
Go away. Yeah. Well, now it's just patinaing, you know? That's what? It's like a patina that's developing yeah. now, you know, it becomes <laughs> right. a different thing right. where, I mean, our experience as far as encountering Ganas was, we, we talked about it. We were like, how did we even find out this exists? And we're like, I don't even remember. I, I, <laughs> I in 2006, seven, I had lived in Austin in a co-op called Sasona off South Lamar. And uh, where South Lamar by Maria's Taco Express, mm -hmm. uh, where that uh, that statue is over there, uh, and I, I had I had learned a tremendous amount. I really enjoyed my time there, uh, and then it was time to leave, and uh, I haven't really experienced anything like that until very recently when we were going to start this project up. I thought, are there intentional communities in New York City that are uh, even approximating that that we mm -hmm. could maybe use as part of our uh, and also like stay there and and you know take the values of an area and and bring our own experiences for the duration of time while we explore and i guess i must have just searched that on google and that's when ganas came up and mm -hmm. um the it's it's ganas ganas that's a spanish word i and it was saying when when you uh this was part of the reason i was really excited about the space when you make the decision that you're about to do something that that instant the actual moment when it's, it's something when you've been, been contemplating in conflict yeah and you and you the goddess is the motivation to break break the conflict and go for it yeah yeah, yeah. and that was something that really resonated with us mm -hmm. insofar as we were planning this trip to walk five marathons a week for a year like and you know to, to <laughs> there was definitely conflict yeah, that we had yeah. to break to go forward yeah. that's quite a commitment yeah so it, it really it really resonated with both yeah. of us um and yeah and just to just to, to it was such kind of a magical surprise to find that this existed unbeknownst to us who had, we've been in the city for 10 years and it had never encountered our radar we try as yeah. best we can to um encounter non-conventional you know systems and ideas mm -hmm. while we're in the city so it's it was just a beautiful surprise you know um in relation to people finding this place and coming here how does it go like when new people i know you're you know we've been mostly talking about the core group um when new people come in is there a period of time where there's a teaching of values or is there sort of like a learning period or how does that typically or maybe not typically maybe there's like some good story you could tell about how that works with new people coming That's to live been, here it's been a huge shift the first 15 or 18 years we uh we had the morning planning session and we had an evening dinner was mm -hmm. was another uh, session so what you basically had was was uh, what I call uh, a transformative community of practice. That was the, the whole core of the of the community, and there was at, uh, for a long time there was 20, 25 people who were involved in that, and that energy radi radiated out to the rest of the community, mm. and. Um, People came in, and there was, you know, there was orientations, there was discussions, there was, you know, interviews and and, and stuff like that. Um, and I guess the uh, Mildred was, in a way, a, a major force in that, because 
she was she was very sing I mean uniquely single-minded mm. you don't meet many people that are single-minded mm. and that's got huge advantages and it comes with big disadvantages <laughs> <laughs> at the same time so uh, but she was uh, one of a uh, singular focus was recruiting people into this project mm. so there was a, a lot of energy and, and stuff that you know uh, that went into it uh, when 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 she retired and we made the big changeover, which I was referring to, that people said, "Wait a minute, we've yeah. done this. Let's," <clears throat> and and that was a very you know dynamic two or three year period that you know this whole thing kind of emerged. Um, since then, there has been nothing to equal that that kind of. Uh, attraction and orientation and we have an orientation program now in which you know, we take people through some of the very uh, basic things mm -hmm. but uh, there isn't an orientation process that really takes okay this is what the project is all about mm. because it's not that kind of a transformative community of practice anymore mm. and I don't I, I have been I've been pushing for it, but uh, and, uh, and at the same time, uh, I'm I'm in conflict about it. Mm. I'm pushing for it because I think you know the project isn't going to go on past the core group unless it uh, it does. Right. And uh, but on the other hand, uh, I'm writing a book. I have a whole project of mine that that I want to do. And I'm 78, and I'm, you know, I've got like a good deal, and it's like I'm not 40, who just came through a, a very traumatic divorce, mm -hmm. and looking for, you know, some new way of life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not there. It's 40 years later, and I've got my way of life. Right. So, you know. So it's it, there's you know that that kind of energy would have to, uh, somehow someone had have to come in with that kind of energy and pick up on it et cetera. So and, when, and if there were, they would probably get a lot of support. Right. But I don't think the energy to to actually really launch it is is uh, is here right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you also can say this to other people in the core group and go, oh bullshit. Right. <laughs> you know, Opinion, yeah. But right. I have tried ten years to push this, yeah. and uh, the conversation never really goes very far. Yeah. So right. I think I have I have the evidence for what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, with that in mind, that it's not sort of the main thrust at the moment. When there is conflict between non-core group members here. Are the same values applied to that, and is there assistance in figuring that out? Is that done <coughs> as a group, or is that typically just? Or yeah, how I does do, that go? We we do our best to, to uh, yeah. I mean, to let out and practice the values because we really find them that make sense. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, it becomes very difficult when when the 
the thing, the, the thing that was really special, or one thing that was really special, is that you could be in, you'd be in conflict with somebody, and there was always, wait a minute, we're not going to go very far on this unless we start talking about how we're talking about it. Because Michael, you're not available for the conversation. What's going on? Where, where are you on this? You know, and you stop trying to solve the problem. Right. To talk about how you're not available to solve the problem. Right. And that was that was the, you know, the core of uh, of our process is that we would go to that level. Mm. And then, but we had people who had committed in various degrees to do that work. Mm -hmm. So yeah. someone who's, who's here now, uh, they may or may not be available for that. And if they're not available for that, well then you do the best you can. Right. You know, within that limited framework. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that totally answers yeah. my question. Because I'm wondering about, you know, it sounds like there's this group the core group that really has studied and practiced and researched and worked together, but then you think about new people coming in and right. it's, you know, even for me, someone that listens to a lot of social scientist things and has been in therapy for a long time, like even that is a difficult uh, thought process to get into. And I could think for someone that's brand new to it, it might be challenging. So that, that makes sense that you share, but not, uh, mm -hmm not necessarily always get there. The One of the things that got brought up in the interview that we listened to today, the idea of culture and structure was something that got brought up and, mm -hmm. and you referenced the idea that you think culture is um, paramount but structure is very much informing of uh, culture does that did I just say that wrong that that you would take culture over structure that it's important to have a the the people uh, that are together to be on the same page culturally and that structure can come second was that something oh, a is that am I, is that a correct assessment and B is that something that you saw represented in the people that were here? Like, were there also some people that thought, I think structure is more important than culture, and then they played out their values in the group and you mm -hmm. had conversations based on that? Or was everybody kind of on the same page where it's like, culture is the most important, we'll figure out the structure later? Very few people have talked about it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kind of came to uh, uh, use that framework in the interview because uh, of the book that I'm writing okay. and the project that I'm trying to, uh, trying to start. <coughs> so let me frame it the way, w uh, and s but I was in the context of that conversation. Of, of that conversation. Yeah. So uh, I'll just give you my basic framework for it. Yeah. A social reality has two dimensions. One of those dimensions is the in here dimension and the other one is the out there dimension. When we get born, the out there 
in some way, shape, or form gets embedded in us. But that embedding can't happen unless we embody. Mm -hmm. So think of language. Is there any way in which I, without some physiological damage, could ever forget how to speak English? It's embedded and embodied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That happens in everything that I have learned in being able to function in this society. The society has wanted me to become a member, so it, the process is embedding. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is, I want to be part of this. This is my mama, mama, and I embody. So, structure is what gets embedded, embodied. It's in here, it's out there. There's no racism out there unless there's racism in us. Mm. There's no English language out there unless it's in, in here. Mm. So that division of culture and structure, which I started out working with that, and then a, a, a friend of mine said, what are you talking about? Structure is as culture as Everything else, that's culture. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to really, really go back to the, the to the drawing board. Mm. And so it says I come up with the in here and the out there, but this in here and out there makes sense only in terms of this whole notion of embedding, embodying, being a single process. It's two phases of the same dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. is uh, what is the 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 analog to culture at that point? Or I guess I guess my question would be: Is there an essential self that exists, or is it all through the conduit of whatever the culture that's impressed upon us? We're biocultural. So your biology has always been different than mine or hers. And so there's a whole unique dimension that this is a unique body that's embodying. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And right. then there's there's the family. The fa uh, can you, uh, 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 a term that I use in, in, in the book is this, a lot of this is taken from a, a, a sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu okay. and he's just an amazing you know, uh, construct for, for how to look at you know the social process mm. so the, the term he came up with was habitus it's a very old term but no one had already used it mm. somehow he ran across in Aristotle and, oh, that's exactly what I'm trying to talk about. So the habitus is what gets embedded embodied. Mm. What you Im uh, uh, embedded embodied through your family experience, your peer group, your education, etc., etc. Mm. It's all very, very unique. Mm. Mm -hmm. And 
agency is a fundamental aspect of the, of the human being. So we have this capacity to reflect. Reflect opens the door to being able to make changes. Mm-hmm. So it's not determined, although it, there's determination, but there's determination and agency. And that was one of the main things that Purdue was trying to do. He was trying to say, it isn't all objective, it isn't all subjective. We need to be able to understand that the objective and the subjective are aspects of the same phenomenon. Mm. And that's where habitus came in, mm. embedded, embodied. The structures come in, but the reason the structures are out there to begin with is because we produce them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then we reproduce them. We keep speaking English. <laughs> if everybody stopped speaking English, it wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be transmitted. Yeah. Right. But we embody, embedded, and then we reproduce, and we change, and we transmit. Mm-hmm. And that's culture. And, and this is the unique thing about the human beings, is they have developed this thing to you know, way beyond any other creature on the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's biological mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So it's, we're biocultural. Yeah. I'm really testing out my book here, and it's and working. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm the looking for readers if you're interested. Yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Definitely. Seriously? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Yeah, we're readers. You're right. I mean, I'm <laughs> but I, I definitely want to read the book. I will say this. We have about two hours before we go to sleep every night, so it oh, might take a us a while. Oh, that's a good point. It might take us no, a while. No, no, no. I, 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 I understand that. I mean, uh, I'm very close to the point of getting to where I'm going to send it to a publisher. Oh, nice. And I'm trying to also wanting to start a website. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. How uh, long is it? I'd love to read it just, and I could tell you what I think, but Mike is really like, he's a reader and a writer and an editor and oh, a great. like lover of language. So he's really the one to look at. I'll read it no, and no, be no, like, no, I'll, no. I'll, I'll, you, I'll chat. Both of our no, no, I'll no, chat no, about no, it. But no, 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 no escape hatches. And I tell, oh, I'll no, tell no, you I would, why. I still want to, but. Yeah, tell me why. My audience is the everyday citizen. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes, so you want it to work on the super language guy and also the the girl that just wants to chat about it. Right. She's elevating me too much and self-depreciating herself. (laughs) (laughs) She's giving up too much away during the course of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) How long was it that you've been uh, undertaking uh, the writing of this book? The long answer to that, (laughs) since I was 16. Oh, wow. wow. The short answer is uh, after Trump's election. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was the jet fuel. But it was, uh, the whole thing has been, I got into this, this is all, it's just one big long arc. Yeah. I got into this because of what happened when I was 16 and, and, and what happened, uh, I was in, uh, involved in the Columbia University student strike in 68. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It happened because <coughs> I was in a, uh, a monastery for three and a half years and had a whole crisis around guilt that unglued the Catholic faith. Mm. And I didn't, I just, you know, undid it. 
and and you know, that's a, that's a whole it's a, it's a whole series of things. You know, it's, it's all one big big movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I finally started getting the, where it was all going in uh, what, 2005, 2006. Vaguely had it, you know, got it, and then I just had the sense of okay, the next step is this. Oh, okay, and then the next step, mm -hmm. you know, I've just been following, following from this step to that step. Yeah. Except my ambition and all of that gets me off track, and then the book gets fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I mean, I, it's like I have a muse, you know. It's like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. You cannot do that. Write the book. Fuck everything else. Just write the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm very, I'm having a delightful, wonderful time, and I would love to be available for whatever. I want to hear your stories too. Yeah, so, sure. yeah. So I've just considered this a, an initial conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, there is one thing I wanted to share, and I. I don't know if it is 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 related or just adjacent. We'll find out. Uh, but with the idea of embedded, embodied slash culture structure, something that we had talked about last month. We were in Manhattan all last month, and we are walking all the streets, and we were talking about how the city is outlined or how it's laid out, right? And we started, we kind of did it in a way that might not seem intuitive. We, for the week one was Midtown. We called that walk the grid. And we went up and down 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th Avenue. Uh, each five days, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, that's going to be the most regimented walk we'll do the whole year. Ever, yeah. Um, and then we went to Central Park, which was uh, still kind of like, uh, that's partially grids on the west and east side, and then the center, which is a little more um, wild. And then uh, week three, we were downtown, and that's when we started uh, kind of developing this idea, thinking about how the streets are laid out. And we kind of started stumbling on this idea that there's the the downtown area which grew organically you know from different farm plots and it's uh you know twisting and streets will start and end and and then we have the grid which was applied with this very future thinking idea that you know manhattan was going to expand beyond its current means and what ended up happening it seems to us or as we've been discussing it was something that blew beyond anybody's imagination in the respect that it has both the structure, the kind of the the sluice way of capital flowing down to this uh, cultural heart, this this area of the city where you are allowed to still indulge and engage that navigation part of the human brain. The part where I can just wander around and and I and I'm decision making versus uptown. This is lower Manhattan. Yes, yeah. the lower Manhattan, where you're you're still very much engaged in like I'm looking for the path, almost mm -hmm. like you're you're not in the woods. But when you're in the woods, and especially when you're not on trails, your right. mind starts seeing where the paths are. Right. 
and uh, that's a very important part of the human brain where you kind of make decisions that is removed in uptown or not uh, well uptown was actually a separate beast up 110th up it's kind of an amalgamation it was uh, but we won't go there but the, the grid itself very much it cuts out that navigation part in favor of like optimal pathways you know mm -hmm. and it's this uh interplay between the two that makes new york city this kind of powerful cultural center that it is you know and when mm -hmm. we were listening to the interview of course you've now uh, expounded upon it much more but when we were listening to the interview there was something about that combination of culture and structure uh, embedded embodied that that felt like it was in the city itself you know yeah yeah, yeah. i think i think it, it, it works that way is, yeah. is, is that uh, um, there's a there's a guy uh, his name is Colin Woodard and uh, he has come up with a um, history of the United States that identifies eleven distinct cultures he calls them nations eleven. I think I've heard of this before. Nations, okay, and his research was in American history, and he identified these, you know, through that area of study. Then he ran across a language map in which they laid out this is the way the languages had been distributed. And it lays over very remarkably wow. with his map. And now you're looking at the voting patterns. And since we're so divided, red and blue and mixing, etc., lays over very accurately. Wow. And the COVID-19 responses with the mask and, and no, wear the mask, oh, no, yeah. fight the mask, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's all, so there is, there, that structure, yeah. but he's yeah. talking strictly in terms of, this was the, it was the, uh, the Scottish Irish that yeah. came in, it was the French, it was the Spanish, it was the, uh, 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 New England was, was, was the Puritans, mm. et cetera, et cetera, and, and they be called Yankeedom, and it expanded in certain yeah. ways up through the North, in, in, uh, North Central, I mean, he's got two, he's got two books on it, and it's, uh, oh, he's got one book on them, but that's the map. Yeah. And, and wow. it's, uh, it, it's really, it's really remarkable, and it just keeps reproducing. Yeah. Yeah, That's fascinating. some sort of bio-memory there as well, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So Wall Street keeps being Wall Street. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, you know, and so, the, and, and then and, and then you had the thing of the uh, 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 Occupy Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so. Was, what was uh, Ganas's uh, state during that I mean you were out of the period of time where you know pre-2000s where you guys were pushing very hard and kind of you were kind of more settling into m maintenance and and kind of having things happen more organically rather than mm -hmm. forcing it was 
was there any involvement in your recollection at that time and kind of what is the been maybe up till present day like what is what does involvement look like to that point with reference in, to I guess Occupy Wall Street, Wall Street all the way up to Black Lives Matter I guess you know okay. like cuz I I kind of see them linked in some way mm. when Occupy Wall Street was going on well, all kinds of people were fascinated. People from outside came and stayed here in order to go to Occupy mm. Wall Street. Yeah. And we were having a discussion one morning in terms of, uh, of uh, in our planning session. And people were talking, oh my God, this Occupy Wall Street, you know, they're really trying out democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And Julie said, people, we've been doing that for <laughs> fucking 20 years right here in the room. <laughs> Where the fuck is your mind? <laughs> right. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and Occupy Wall Street lasted a month. It didn't. I mean, I we had conversations about it recently with respect to the uh, recent swelling of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd's death. And you know, we we did a podcast. We talked about it. And you know. I remember when Occupy happened, I was very excited about it, and the, um, I guess, how I interpret the idea of what, like the leaderless leadership or something that was happening at that time seemed very novel to me, and then ultimately felt, from my perspective, like it was unable to latch on in the greater consciousness because people look for somebody some leadership some tier of leadership uh to be able to understand what a movement is about mm. if there's not somebody that is uh taking the mantle of representing it even if it's they're doing a a, a job that's bad or somehow egotistical uh, it becomes very hard or either very hard or easy for an outsider to dismiss and i wonder from your perspective of uh i i I know it's not top down, but I know you told me what it was, but I forget what it, you know, but there, there is a type of participatory management. Yes. Right. Yes. For I really like that. Phrase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is some type of person that people can look to in order to, uh, to trust making a final decision or something. And that, that seemed to be lacking from my mm. perspective on the Occupy side of things. And I don't know. I, I guess relative to everything I just said, did you? What is your observation of the Occupy situation? Did it did it seem to fall short in terms of having that thrust of direction? Before I try to answer that question, <laughs> <laughs> would you like a little taste of uh, our process? Sure. Okay. You're having a very very hard time holding on to the notion of participatory management. The phrasing. Right. Yeah. But even in the way you've talked about occupying leaderless and that, mm -hmm. it's like you're struggling to get some clear on something, mm. and we're having a hard time. Okay, so I'm giving you feedback. Yeah. This is. I'm seeing something, so I'm stopping the conversation. The step down is let's look at how this conversation is working. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, and I'm I'm and I'm giving you the feedback. So now, in terms of in terms of the feedback, the ideal thing for you to do is to hear it as 
fully and as thoroughly as you can so you can evaluate whether it's useful or it's not. Okay. Any attempt to defend, I'm not saying you're doing that, but any attempt to defend yeah. cuts you off from getting the information that's out, that's coming towards you. Yeah. Okay. So that was the main thing that we focused on. And anyone can give anyone feedback. And the participatory management system is based on consulting. That is, you get the feedback. You even get the feedback on your performance as a manager because there's somebody working under you saying, look, you're really fucked up and I want to talk about this. Yeah. The conversation is, is had. Yeah. Back to the, 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 the conversation. There's a binary of leader or leaderless. Mm. Leader, if you have the binary, then the leader, there's something really wrong with it, it gets all fucked up. Mm -hmm. mm. It becomes domination. On the other hand, the other part of the binary is leaderless, it's chaotic. And Occupy Wall Street fell apart, mm -hmm. in part because they couldn't really have a conversation. Yeah. Because someone could get up and say, I want to speak, and then they had to let them speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. They had no structure. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> management, if you just stop back and look at it, it has hierarchy and it has anyone is possible to participate and speak to any issue the hierarchy is dealing with. Mm -hmm. So what the leader let's is trying to get to is contained in that. Mm -hmm. And what the leadership is trying to get to is contained in that. Mm -hmm. The binary framing wipes you out. Right. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, we don't want it's equality or hierarchy. No. And then there's a, the other shift is primary is that we never talk about someone has the right to speak. We talk about you have the responsibility to listen. Mm. Because if you're listening, you're going to have something useful to say or ask. Yeah. Yeah. And the main people who have to listen are the managers. <laughs> <laughs> Because right. they're the ones who mm -hmm. have to make the decision. Mm -hmm. right. So you really got to listen. <laughs> it's in the listening. Mm. Yeah. Not in you have a right to do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why this whole project was profoundly political. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it makes all the sense of the world that you would have a struggle with this concept of participatory management. Yeah. That you, because you're male, would have more difficulty than she would have it because she's female. Mm -hmm. Hobbitus. Mm. <laughs> I also a have lot a more <laughs> a lot of things got <laughs> embedded, embodied with her that you and I missed out on. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the <laughs> of, of the 
we, we used to redo the stores, you know, re redecorate, rearrange and everything like that. And Mildred would be down and she, she was always doing, you know, sexual uh, relationship counseling. And so she'd have a team of women around and they'd be talking about this and this, what, this relationship and that relationship. And I always made sure that I was positioned somewhere nearby and I listened all the time because mm. I didn't have it. It was like that. This is, you know, I, I just knew that whatever I was getting was just filling some vacuum that I didn't get. Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up with three brothers. <laughs> yeah. And an Irish mother. And yeah. She ruled with a pretty heavy hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, so I, that's, so whether that's relevant or not. Yeah. To the extent that you hear that and you know take it in and you know yeah. think about it, yeah, then you've got another something new to work. Well, with. I do. I, I think it'll sink in. I do hear that. I I think I do, and I appreciate yeah. I appreciate you taking the time out of the conversation than rather to a answer the question. Broaden the definition of conversation. Mm. You can't have a conversation unless you can talk about how you're talking mm. in. The conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you incorporating into the conversation <laughs> the, the tier necessary. Right. The reason why is because you guys are available to really take it in. Yeah. I've had, could have had this conversation with 200 people, but they couldn't take it in. Yeah. It didn't make, it, it wouldn't com compute, so there wasn't yeah. any point going there. When you have the discussions in, in group, either in the morning sessions or, or I guess otherwise, is is this understanding implicit to the most of the members where you can you can slide to that next tier immediately and it's it's not like um, I don't it's not a uh, it doesn't need to be I guess offensive but also it doesn't even need to be mentioned that we're going there uh, like everybody understands like we need to hit this layer first before we go to that discussion yeah 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 in varying degrees, because yeah. there's people, five or six of us, went through the whole, mm -hmm. the whole Megillah, yeah. and others have joined later and all of that, but they were attracted to it. Yeah. But there's a basic, uh, it's a basic understanding, you know, is that you've got to stop a conversation in order to find out what's really going on. That's jamming the conversation. Mm. Yeah. So it must feel like, well. I'm not a musician, but I did play some music periodically. But it must it must really feel like riding a wave of mu like good music or something. You're all jamming on the when it's like you don't even need exactly. to like everybody's hitting where it needs to go and all of a right. sudden, wow, we made a lot of decisions today for some reason. We were just all yeah, on the we same get, page. We get some conversations like that. Yeah. And we get some conversations where we're like, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we quit early, please? Yeah. But I would imagine that must be one of the primary enthusiasms to being a part of this community is that conversing. The idea of getting all together in a room, sharing ideas. I think you mentioned it in the other interview to some capacity that, mm -hmm. you know, you are greater as a consequence of being a part of this community. Oh, yeah. yeah. And no question about it. Yeah. If it's conversation, I go away better than I was when yeah. I came up yeah. the stairs. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wanted to talk about food. Mm -hmm. 
I, I imagine that, you know, when you talk to a prospective new person or, or even just a, a person that you're describing the situation to, you go, it's, I think it was 920. I don't know if it is that much anymore, but it is X amount of dollars to live at Ghana's uh, depending on the year. And the fr and that includes food, you know, like that is the I would uh, toilet paper. Toothpaste. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it includes a, a, a wonderful ama amount of things. I was also thinking in the shower before we had the, the conversation, like, well, it includes Internet. Did it include telephone previously? You know, like where there must have been some like things that have been switched in and out over mm -hmm. the course of 40 years as technology has developed, you know. But food, you know, that's the thing that, you know, you, you know, when people think about culture and sharing culture, they often think about food as the first thing. and. And it's such, you know, oh, I can live and eat here? Well, then what more do I need? You know, like mm -hmm. I, I can do so much. Uh, how, I, I, like how uh, was that apart from the get? It was like food is, is shared and like how has that evolved as a, a dynamic and a part of the community? You know, has it grown? Has it shrunk as the years have gone on? Pretty early on a, a, a dinner with the major that, that that there's a dinner for everyone with with a with a mainstay, and that's that stayed. The planning session uh, was like a breakfast for whoever came to it. Mm. You know, there was there was a whole thing laid out for breakfast, and uh, COVID nineteen ended that because you come with your mask. So. Right. Right. And. Uh, and it was uh, all the people would be in the room, and now it's we've got a few people in the room who can space themselves, and other people come in through Zoom. Mm. So it's a Zoom room uh, uh, session, and that's changed, you know, the the, the whole dynamic. Um, for a very long time, uh, and, and probably all the way up until. We started going into the changeover. The food taste, et cetera, et cetera. There, were ve there was very little in the way of private food. Mm. Okay. I'm not sure how much of this had to do with the changeover, but it also had to do with the fact that people started getting into this whole stuff about healthy food, organic food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the whole the whole culture has been taken over by you know people coming in with very so we went from having a single refrigerator in a house to having two. One's the community refrigerator, one's the private food mm. refrigerator. And it was like when we started doing this, we said, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here? This is privatization. Right. This is what, you know, huh? Yeah. But it, I mean, in, in a way, it really wasn't privatization. It was, you know, adjusting to, there's been a real change in mm. the whole culture and the way people relate to food. And so we adapted to it. Yeah. So is, in, am I? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is definitely this on is, the right track, yeah. Yeah. For a long time, we were, I guess you would say we were like a meat and potato community. Yeah. And, uh, so, so there were some people from another community uh, uh, were visiting, and they were talking about you, you guys. You know, there, there's no. I mean, you have vegetables, yeah, and that's pretty good, but there, there's no 
I can't make a salad. There's nothing here for a salad. <laughs> and you know, and, you know, and we're just people go, well, who wants to make a salad? No, it's and then someone finally said, all right, how would we do that? You know, yeah. you have the table. We've got it's big enough to take all this other food for this for 100 people. What, what, do, how are we going to set up a a, a a salad bar? And the woman got up and said, "Look, you have this over here, right here, and you just got drinks and stuff like that. You can put another thing over here, and then you use that." And we just went in and did it. And yeah. they, I mean, she was right. Yeah. <laughs> she, she said, "Here, you can do it this way." Oh yeah, we can, and we did it. Yeah. So. That's uh, where the, the silent bar became instituted, and that was a result of outside input. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Do you, 40 years worth of time, do you recall ever, is there like a, a, a spot during those time where you were like, oh, that was a, that was a good run of cooks or something? <laughs> was there ever like a period where it was like, oh man, that person knew what they were doing, I really <laughs> like that time? Yeah, uh, and then there were runs winners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually have have about four people who cook, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, but uh, there was a there was a Russian woman who who who, who was who did all the cooking. That was her whole job, and uh, she was really amazing. <laughs> she had a, baby, you know, taking care of the baby and doing the cooking and all of this. And, wow. and, uh, but mostly what we have, the, the, what, the way we do it now is that we have a cook and we have a prep person, mm. you know, and then someone comes in to help do the salad bar. Mm. And the salad bar is maybe, you know, setting up the salad bar is like a couple hours of work. And the prepping is about three or four hours of work. And the cook is pretty much the whole day. Yeah. So. Yeah. How you mentioned that the, this this restaurant. One thing about the food, though, I yeah. think that you really, really know, because this is something to really go. You gotta be kidding me! Oh <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> How much money do you think we spend per person per month? Oh. Per person per month. Right. Ooh, that's a good question. I'm. I'm gonna embarrass myself guessing. I feel like I'm either gonna blow it too high or too low. I know, me too. Because you're buying a bulk. Uh, $28? I don't know. I was going to say 100 So we Nine, are, we have a range. 90 90 90 She knows better than me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's still incredible. But I, mean, I also incredible. thought 100 is very low because what we pay for the two of us is like probably 100 every week and a half. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so we probably spend $250 per person on food, typically. Yeah. What is uh, what is the workflow or the purchasing, like what does that look like, like in broad terms? On Wednesday morning they drive up this big uh, uh, van and three people get in it and they go out and do a whole tour of stores and wow. things and come back with about $1,200, $1,500 worth of food. And then at seven o'clock, the text goes out, a whole bunch of people show up and chain the food up to the pantry, which is, uh, this is 139, 135. The pantry is in, is the basement of the 131. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, we got the text uh, this week, but uh, we're, we're in quarantine, so yeah, we can't we'll touch the food. We're, we're excited <laughs> to help next week. I yeah. think next week will be the first Our day first time. we can yeah. do it. But yeah. yeah. How uh, the... And it used to be, I mean, before the, before uh, uh, COVID, yeah. you know, there was a whole table which was set up and chairs on the outside. And so mm. You could have 15 or 20 people eating dinner together. Oh, that's <coughs> right. Yeah. Go ahead. That's yeah, really nice. the uh, you 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 mentioned uh, the Russian woman that was uh, that had the baby with her. Uh, ha, I presume that the the they lived they lived here in the community. Mm -hmm. Both the, how when everyone was who works here lives here. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've done an exception or two, but for the most part. How far in was it that you had the first child living here, and what? In general, what it, you know, speak a little bit about what like the range of experiences with with having children growing up in the community. Mm. Well, between 1980 and 2000, there were very few children. Uh, after 2000, it was one of the one of the big changes. So, uh, Susan adopted Nina. Uh, She's from Kazakhstan, mm. uh, and uh, then there were two people who lived upstairs, uh, Anna and Patricio, and they adopted uh, a child from Colombia, mm. and, and then uh, there was a, a couple that lived here that had a, a, a there was a person who uh, was a longtime person, uh, a member, he wasn't in the core group, but he was very integrated and played a very vital role in many ways and uh, he hooked up with a woman who had a child mm -hmm. and so at one time and, and then uh, and then uh, David Nicky uh, had a child and then Catherine moved in and she had a child so there was a time when there were like five or six wow. children seven you know or you know and uh, Almost all of those now are, you know, teenagers. Mm -hmm. So that's that was about that was the whole range of uh, of our child rearing, wow. and the parents never were able to work out an agreement on on, on how they wanted to do childcare. Mm. Each had their different things, et cetera, et cetera. So we it never became a collective thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you said they're, they're, most of them are teenagers, so they still no, yeah. So they still live here. Um, Bram is here. Dean is here. Uh, one of the things that happened uh, uh, after the changeover, I know it was 2006, 2007, something like that, uh, Anna and Patricio were upstairs, and Anna was George's uh, brother, mm, so she mm. was one of the original people, although she was never in the core group. Uh, they decided to buy a house down the street. Mm. And so then Nikki and uh, uh, Nikki moved out and she, Nick, Nikki and David were a couple and mm. Nikki moved out and they had a son and so they're living right next Go to 48. Oh wow! 
and then uh, uh, David moved out and partnered with someone, and he lives down the street. And then uh, Eric was a, a long-term member of the core group, and he married in, in uh, em, uh, I want to say Emily, but that's, uh, that's not her name, Ruby. Ruby is now about 14, mm -hmm. and, and they just moved out about a year and a half ago, but they live, you know, over there. Oh, wow. So everyone stayed close so, by. So there's like, an, you know, an ex, uh, extended community around the community. That's nice. It's interesting, you know, you, the changeover, as if, and if I'm understanding it correctly, that the idea of it going from there being kind of an intentional energy to uh, there being a kind of a non, for lack of a better word, non-intentional energy. That's not good, it's, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's, it's interesting, though, that maybe it's also you got the, the group got to a certain point where it didn't have to be conscious you know, like it's it's an unconscious still developing, though. You know, everybody's still maintaining close ties, and it's like uh, like uh, when you master something. Like I don't know if you've heard of that ten thousand hour rule or something, where if you do something for ten thousand hours, you become a master at it. And just the idea that it had been happening for so long that it no longer had to be at the forefront to still be happening. You know, and and to have it just still like it you this community is existing now beyond the structures of what this community is but it's still espousing the values and there's still an allegiance and a dedication to the spirit of it and it's just shining out of it rather than you know speaking out of it you know but it's not really reproducing mm. all of the people that are, are around were people who were to one degree or another, really, uh, you know, in the project. Mm. Uh, although Nikki wasn't really in the project that much, uh, but David was part of the core, core group. Anna and Patricia were very much part of the project, although they weren't part of the core group. Uh, Eric was in the core group, and Jenny, his wife, was very much into. into in fact, they'll come into planning, sit down, and. You know, you would say, you know, where have y'all been? I haven't <laughs> seen you around, but you're obviously, yeah. you know, integrated. Yeah. But uh, there's no new blood, new blood. Yeah. It's very, very few. I mean, uh, I guess from my perspective, it's it's reproducing in my imagination. You know, the the fact that we are hearing it now, you know, it has sparked our interest. And right. our, you know, and then who knows if we do anything with that energy, but we promulgate it out further. Yeah. And then it, uh, you know, Ghanis as an individual doesn't have ambitions anymore. But the ambitions of Ghanis extend right. in ways mm -hmm. that are fluid, and, you know. And uh, my book is trying to do the same thing. Yeah. It's called Growing Democracy. Mm. Taking our democracy and love to a new level. Yeah. And it's it's uh, a, a core part of the whole thing is the transformative community of practice. <coughs> yeah. It's great. I think that's a really great time to turn these off. We can keep talking, sure. but it feels like a nice <laughs> capsule. No, and and uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, and I'm up for getting. I want to hear about your yeah your stories and your trip and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. Well, fortunately, yeah, we have. Uh, 
we have three weeks to continue this right, uh, this right. conversation. I would love to be able to talk more. And I just, I mean, I, hundreds more questions that I could ask about this. But sure. yeah, we definitely want to tell you about what we're doing too. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to bring the book in. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this is wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed. As always, if you could do the like thing, the share thing, we do this every week. We'll be back next week talking about South Staten Island, our walk through there, which, as we have been told is a very different profile from the northern parts we've been exploring these past few weeks. Yeah, we haven't been there yet. We'll keep you posted. We will be there next week. We'll fill you in. Yeah. But thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.